Hi everyone. Hola. Guess what? We are back with another spooky ooky episode of Misery Manor, your fucking favorite. So grab your candles, turn off your lights, grab your tits, because this bitch is about to get creepy. We have an episode about exorcisms <laughs> and demons. So leave your manners at the door. What you are about to hear is a collection of stories true stories about demon possession. The individuals in these stories come from all walks of life, various time periods, and several different countries. The details of their stories may differ greatly, but there are certain things they all have in common. Loss of control, torment, and fear. In fact, fear is rampant in these stories. Personal fear, fear of insanity, fear of the stigma of demon possession, fear of some diabolical creature only they can see, Fear for their loved one's safety and fear for their very soul. Julia, Satan's Priestess. Dr. Richard Gallagher, a board-certified psychiatrist, published a paper entitled Among the Many Counterfeits, a Case of Demonic Possession in the Oxford Review, March of 2008, discussing his experiences with a patient whom he fully believed was demon-possessed. Julia, the pseudonym he gave his patient, was in her early 40s, a self-supporting, intelligent woman whom he described as quite poised. In an informal conversation with her, there was nothing to hint she was controlled by anything paranormal and she seemed logical and quite sane. To all appearances, Julia was normal, attractive, well-spoken woman. The main thing that stood out about Julia was her rather dramatic choice of appearance all black clothing combined with an abundance of dark-eyed makeup. Julia was self st a self-styled satanic, satanic priestess who had been active in various satanic cults throughout the years. There was nothing to cause those involved in the case to doubt the truth of this, and even she admitted it was most likely the cause behind the possession. She initially asked for help from the Catholic Church but when her symptoms began to manifest, they had concerns. Being raised Catholic, though rejecting Catholicism in the past, she still felt it was in her best hope. It was one of the priests working on her case that asked Dr. Gallagher to participate in the cause. Some of the chilling aspects of Julia's possessions were voices that would speak through her. They ranged from deep and disgruntled and menacing to abnormally high-pitched voices. All of the voices were remarkably coming from her, and they were not Julia's normal speaking voice, as well as her normal means of expression. The voices would claim ownership of Julia and mock those trying to help her using filthy and vile language. These voices express an unbelievable level of hatred and besides knowing the disturbing things about those in the vicinity of Julia. 
These voices didn't only speak English as Julia did. They were fluent in Spanish, Latin, Greek, and it seemed that they relished in distracting the priests and nuns involved by utilizing classical languages. The voices were always crude and abusive, punctuating their threats with foul language. None of these, this was typical of Julia's pattern of speech on the content of her conversations. Neither the tone of her voice, speech patterns, or expressions in any way reflected Julia. In one incident, Julia mentioned to a team member, Those cats really had a fight last night, didn't they? Most may not find the statement out of context. However, the team member lived in a different city than Julia and had been awakened at 2 a.m. by her two pet cats who normally got along very well, having a terrible cat fight in the middle of the night. Apparently, whatever was in control of Julia knew about it and might have even instigated the situation. This event was, to say the least, quite intimidating, which was no doubt the purpose behind it. In another instance, Julia spoke to another team member about his or her deceased family member with information concerning their relationship, personality, and type of cancer suffering. Julia had no previous information concerning the team member's family. Once again, Whatever was controlling Julia was trying to intimidate those working for her deliverance. Julia would often reveal to team members their secret weaknesses and sins in addition to accurately stating the location and actions of people called to work on the case before she had ever even met them. Members believed something wanted the team to know there was nothing about them they didn't know. During her exorcisms, Julia could tell the difference between holy water and plain tap water. If plain tap water was poured or sprinkled on her, she showed no physical reaction. However, if holy water was applied to her, she would scream out in agonizing pain. The voices speaking through Julia didn't just limit themselves to evaluation and exorcism times. In a quite chilling episode, Dr. Gallagher was discussing Julia's case on the phone with a priest far from where Julia was located. In the middle of the conversation, one of Julia's demonic voices interrupted the conversation, ordering the men to leave Julia alone. Both men were completely baffled as to how her voice managed to come over the phone line as well as how they knew they were discussing her at the time. What did impress the team, however, was how Julia would sometimes levitate during her exorcisms. In one particular instance, a group of witnesses, including health professionals and nuns working as a psychiatric nurse, saw Julia floating unsupported about 10 inches above the floor for 30 whole minutes. This was not the first time she was said to have levitated, but it was the most impressive instance and occurred during an attempted exorcism. Levitation was not the most dramatic manifestation associated with Julia's condition. During another levitation incident, while suspended in the air six inches off the floor, objects began to fly off the shelves around the room in a terrifying display of what experts call psychokinesis. Oddly enough, when Julia was questioned about the incident later, she did not remember any of it.
When levitating or speaking in other voices, Julia would go into a trance-like state, as if she was checked out and something else was checked in. During these trance, besides manifesting paranormal powers, Julia would speak of herself in third person, and much of what she said took the form of taunts, jeers, and threats. Phrases such as, she's ours, and leave her alone, imbecile. Other expressions peppered with extreme profanity were quite common. Another characteristic of what was said was very great content for religion and other things sacred. Going as far as to call the nuns whores and sluts and pigs, she also exhibited superhuman strength to the point at least three women held her down and she could not harm the others. On a warm, sunny day, Julia was brought in for another exorcism. As she was led into the room, those presents felt a dramatic, icy drop in the temperature. It was an unnatural cold that chilled them to the bone as the room took on an eerie, hostile environment. Nevertheless, when the demons began to speak through Julia, things changed dramatically. The temperature in the room consistently increased and those working with her began to sweat profusely as the temperatures continued to rise to almost unbearable levels. As they continued with prayers and rituals, in spite of stifling unnatural heat, the sounds coming from Julia changed to chilling, animalistic uproars, seemingly impossible for any human to make. Soon, the voices switched back to their normal behavior, utilizing different languages such as abuse, contempt, sacrilege, and extreme hatred and anger towards everyone. Sadly, while the exorcisms proved to be helpful, Julia never found complete freedom from the demons that possessed her. Michael Taylor, From Exorcism to Murder Michael Taylor, husband of Christine Taylor and father of five children, was a butcher in Osset, England. He and his family seemed like a typical family of the 1970s. He was quite happily married, loved his children, and he did not suffer from depression or other mental issues. He was an average-looking 30-year-old man with a big smile and laid-back personality, though he did have chronic back pain. His young wife, Christine, was an attractive blonde and seemed quite attached to him. Their quiet life took a disturbing turn, though, when Michael became involved with a local religious sect called the Christian Fellowship Group. He and his family were not at all religious until a neighbor invited him to attend one of their meetings. There he met the lay leader of the group, 22-year-old Marie Robinson, and he became obsessed with both the group and her. This group, later described as a cult by some involved, soon took up much of Michael's time. He began to attend all the services, participate in deliverance-type meetings, and attend personal prayer meetings with Marie. He was also spending less and less time at home when he was at home. Things seemed very different. Christine, who was beginning to suspect that there was more to Michael and Marie's relationship than just prayer, became very concerned. She began to wonder if he was having an affair with Marie. Later on, Michael stated he remembers suddenly appearing naked in front of Marie and feeling evil stirring within him. He claimed her eyes turned into slits and she seduced him. 
He tried to fight it, he said, but the temptation overcame him. He claimed he went to her seeking knowledge and spiritual guidance, but in retrospect, he could see this was not the right way and felt betrayed. Marie, however, told quite a different story. She said she was visiting Michael at his home, and as Christine left the room, Michael kissed Marie. Marie rejected his advances, reminding him of how much he loved his wife. He agreed, and when Christine came back in the room, he informed her that a great victory had been won because he and Marie had overcome their passions. Either way, it's very clear something was quite wrong with Michael's thinking. According to those who knew him best, this was simply not the Michael they knew. There had been a drastic change in his behavior, and it wasn't good. On top of everything else, he lost his job and was suffering severe depression. Christine, his 29-year-old wife and mother of his children, began to worry about him more and more. Finally, she could not take any more and took matters into her own hands. During a religious service, she openly, before the congregation, accused Michael of cheating on her with Marie. She expected Michael to react with anger, no doubt, but she could never have expected what happened next. Normally laid back, mellow Michael turned with a primal fury, not on Christine, but on Marie. According to witnesses, his facial features twisted into something downright bestial as he jumped to his feet and charged toward her, yelling obscenities and screaming at her in different languages. Enraged, he slapped her brutally on the face. Marie said the look out of his eyes convinced her he wanted to kill her, and she was frightened for her life. Several members of the group leaped to their feet to grab hold of Michael before he could harm Marie further though it took a while for them to restrain him. Michael continued to yell and scream at Marie, switching from language to language. Terrified, both Marie and Christine began to call in the name of Jesus. As they did, Michael calmed down enough to be released. After all of it was over, Michael insisted he had no memory of what happened. Michael returned to the next meeting and seemingly the group, included Marie, forgave him. Conversely, things were not well at home. Even before the incident, Christine noticed his behavior changing. He was irritable, angry, and sullen, and when he was home, he seemed to stifle the joy from their existence. In public, he was doing strange things like spitting on people and telling them it was the milk of human kindness. Even the neighbors noticed the usually boisterous laughing family was abnormally quiet and reserved. As his behavior became more and more erratic, someone talked to a local Anglican priest. Based on what he heard, the priest decided an exorcism was needed. Both Anglican and Methodist ministers were called in to assist with the exorcism, which Michael agreed to participate in. Michael and his young wife met with the exorcism team, which lasted all night and into the morning. During the process, Michael had convulsions along with screaming, biting, scratching, and spitting. He was tied to the floor for the safety of all. Anytime someone came near Michael, he would snarl and snap at them like a wild animal. The prayers, confessions, and Bible readings went on for hours while Michael fought, seeming to be more animalistic than human at times. By early the next morning, the team claimed they had cast 40 demons out of Michael, including demons of incest, bestiality, blasphemy, and lewdness. Worn out, the group decided to stop and try again a bit later because they felt there were three demons left demons of insanity, murder, and violence. The wife of one of the ministers was present at the exorcism and she felt very, very strongly if the team let Michael go, he would most certainly kill Christine. 
She spoke to her husband and begged the team to keep at it a little longer and not leave such a crucial, dangerous job unfinished. Unfortunately, the exhausted team ignored her words, which proved to be prophetic. Michael returned home with Christine to rest up for another exorcism. Within two hours of their return, Christine was dead. Michael strangled her with his hands. Then while apparently naked, he had pried out her eyeballs, ripped out her tongue, and tore most of her face off, all with his bare hands and fingernails. Autopsy's reports showed that she died quickly, but inhaled some of her own blood. Fortunately, the children were not at home when this took place, but police also found Michael's mother-in-law's pet poodle strangled and torn almost limb from limb. The crime scene was disturbing to even the most experienced officers on the local police force who struggled with the memories for years. The officers described Christine as simply torn to pieces. The murder was discovered after Michael was found wandering the streets naked and covered in blood, crying, it's the devil's blood. Officers took him into custody and the crime scene was discovered when they went to his home to check on his wife. Michael had become convinced Christine was a demon possessed, confessing to officers later, released, I am released, it is done, the evil in her has been destroyed. It seemed the demons remained in control of him with the only way for Michael and Christine to be free was for Christine to die. The minister's wife was correct. Those demons of violence, insanity, and murder were aiming to see Christine destroyed. Michael was tried for murder but was acquitted on grounds of insanity. He attempted suicide four times and spent two years in a mental hospital, then two years in a secure ward. Years after his release, Michael was arrested and tried for inappropriately touching an underage girl. He was found guilty and less than a year into his sentence, it was noted that he was exhibiting the same type of behavior he had shortly before Christine's murder. He was once again remanded into psychiatric care. It is speculated he was never fully freed of the demons that drove him to murder his wife and leave his five children motherless with what many perceived to be a monster for a father, proving demon possession doesn't just affect the possessed. This story is called David, the Beast Man and the Boy. David was about 11 years old when his family began renovating some new property. One fateful day, when the family was busy remodeling this older house, David's mother saw him suddenly fall backwards onto the bed for no obvious reason. Naturally, she asked him what happened, and his reply was rather puzzling. He said, The old man pushed me. When pressed, David told his mother he had been pushed onto the bed by an old man dressed in jeans and a flannel shirt. He had a very white beard, but his skin was as rough as it had been burned. He said that after the old man pushed him down, he pointed a long, skinny finger at his chest and simply said, Beware. His mother saw nothing and decided David was just trying to avoid work. It turns out this was just the beginning of a season of absolute terror for young David. Next, David began to have nightmares in which he saw what he called the Beast Man. This creature looked somewhat like a tall, dark man at first glance, but his eyes were large and completely black. His feet formed hooves, his facial features were animalistic, his ears were tall and pointed, his teeth were jagged, and he had horns extending from his head. 
David said this creature would appear in his nightmares and was after his soul. His mother was concerned about these reoccurring nightmares that caused David to wake up screaming, but things got even worse. After the nightmares, she would find bruises and scratch marks all over David, and David had no natural explanation and seemingly appeared while it happened in his sleep. Imagine David's horror when the beast man began to appear during the daytime. Not only that, but imagine the family's fear when deep scratch marks began to appear on the front door just around the time David told them that he saw the beast man in the house. The situation escalated even further when mysterious noises began to descend from the attic. Debbie, David's older sister, asked her boyfriend Cheyenne to stay with the family to help out with David. When the noises would begin, Cheyenne would quickly make his way out of the attic, only to discover nothing that could possibly be causing these mysterious sounds. As things continued, David's personality began to change and his nightmares grew much worse. Eventually, someone had to stay up with him all night because he would go into convulsions about every 30 minutes. In addition, he gained almost 60 pounds in just a few months despite the loss of sleep, convulsions, and high stresses he was under. A priest was called in to perform a blessing on the home, but it seemed to intensify David's problems. More noises extorted from the attic, as did increased daytime appearances from the beast man and the old man. David began to exhibit very disturbing behavior, such as hearing voices no one else heard and growling. David began to kick, bite, and swear using words his family didn't even know he knew. He would also growl and hiss in some kind of beast, and it was some kind of beast instead of a young boy. He didn't seem like David anymore. David began to quote verbatim from Milton's Paradise Lost, hardly reading hard hardly reading material for an 11-year-old boy and certainly not among David's preferred reading. He also began to speak in strange voices and quoted Latin, a language he did not know. Ed and Lorraine Warren, well-known demonologists, were called in to see if there was anything they could do to identify the source of the problem and help David. Lorraine identified an evil presence in pursuit of David. As Davis sat at the family kitchen table during his initial interview with the Warrens, Lorraine saw a very dark, ominous mist take form behind David. Moments later, David said he was being strangled and he strangled and enormous red bruises appeared all over his neck where no bruising had been just moments before. The Warrens were certain that a demonic entity was involved. Four priests were summoned and, and a series of three unofficial exorcisms were performed. During the exorcisms, David would growl, hiss, thrash, kick, fight, and spit like a wild animal. Strange voices making horrific slams and claims and prophecies would speak through him. According to the Warrens, there were 43 demons cast out of young David. After the exorcisms, David began to improve dramatically. The noises in the attic stopped, as did the convulsions and nightmares. The beast man wasn't through with this family yet, though. So here's part two.
This one's called Cheyenne, the guy from before, the beast man, and the night sky. So Cheyenne was a 19-year-old young man with a reputation for working hard for those he loved. He had quit school before he graduated to help his family and even purchase an old clunker of a car for his mother so she couldn't have to walk back and forth. This well-liked, blonde-headed nice guy with the muscular, compact build would do just about anything for anyone. When he found out his girlfriend's little brother, David, was going through some scary things, he was more than happy to move in with the family and provide whatever he could to help. Cheyenne was, th was there when the priests were performing exorcisms on David, whom he had come to love like his own little brother. During one of the exorcisms, though, Cheyenne made a very serious mistake. In his misguided concern for David, he challenged the demons to leave the little guy alone and come to him instead. At the time, it seemed like nothing had happened, but demonologist Lorraine Warren knew there could be serious repercussions for Cheyenne. She even went so far as to warn the local police that there might be problems and ask them to keep an eye out on Cheyenne. Before long, Cheyenne and his girlfriend Debbie were engaged and decided to get their own place. Debbie was able to get a job for a local dog groomer and kennel owner named Alan who was about 40 years old. Alan owned an apartment next to the kennel and offered to rent it out to Debbie and Cheyenne. They took him up on the offer and it seemed that things were going well for a while. Debbie noticed Cheyenne started to go into trances in which he would, he would search around and growl at something. Debbie couldn't see. This immediately reminded Debbie of what had happened to her little brother David. She also remembered that one of the voices that came through David said that the beast man would enter Cheyenne and cause him to murder someone. Debbie recalled David swore he saw the beast man enter Cheyenne's body. As soon as the trances were over, Debbie confronted Cheyenne about what was going on, but he had no memory of anything happening. It was as if the trance was simply lost time. Debbie was horrified, but there was nothing she could do. Suddenly, Cheyenne began to have run-ins with the local police, though he did not have a police record or had ever been in any sort of trouble with the law. One fateful, fateful day, Cheyenne decided to call in sick to his job where he worked as a tree surgeon. He decided he would spend the day with Debbie and his sister, Wanda, and they worked in the kennel. As the morning wore on, Debbie's nine-year-old cousin, Mary, arrived. Together, the little group was enjoying the company of the dogs and just chatting. Around lunchtime, Debbie's boss and landlord, Alan, showed up and took them all out to lunch at a local bar. Alan and Cheyenne got very drunk, and as they returned to the kennel, Debbie began to get a very, very bad feeling. As she was trying to decide what to do about this feeling, Cheyenne and Alan began to argue. The argument quickly escalated and Cheyenne started growling and hissing at Alan. His behavior was becoming more beast-like by the minute. Knowing something was very bad about knowing that something very bad was about to happen, Debbie was prepared to pull Wanda and Mary out of the room. She managed to grasp Wanda's arm, but when Alan saw where they were going to leave, he grabbed the arm of the little nine-year-old Mary and refused to let go of her. 
Cheyenne pulled out a five-inch folding pocket knife from his pocket and stabbed Alan in the stomach. Instead of pulling the knife out, he pulled it upward towards Alan's heart. Debbie rushed the others out of the room as Cheyenne began repeatedly stabbing Alan in the chest and stomach before running away. The police arrived and Alan died several hours later. The doctors were horrified at the gaping wound that extended from his lower stomach up to his heart. They also noticed four other very large wounds on his body and a total of 40 stab wounds. The police apprehended Cheyenne about two miles from the crime scene. Needless to say, Cheyenne was tried for murder and when law lawyers attempted to get him off on the claim that he was demon possessed, the trial became known as the demon murder trial. The judge refused to allow Cheyenne to make a plea based on the demonic possession and the trial proceeded as a normal murder trial despite the media circus that quickly surrounded it. Cheyenne was convinced and served five years of a 10 to 22 year sentence. He and Debbie are now happily married and it seems the Beastman went his own way. Anna, most unnatural. Moments after the exorcism began, teenager Anna slid loose from the restraints holding her to the cast iron bed frame and jumped up from the mattress, hanging from the bare wall above the doorway. Those present could find no natural explanation of how she managed to hang with only her hands and feet, nor could they explain why it took so much combined strength to pull her back down. They also couldn't provide a natural explanation of how she saw where to leap because her eyes were clamped tightly shut as soon as the exorcism began. Additionally, they could not explain the multitude of voices emerging from her when her lips were firmly fastened. Anna couldn't shed any light on the situation because she entered a trance-like state during the exorcisms, remembering nothing when fully conscious. Anna had been a very devout, well-behaved 14-year-old girl with a spotless reputation when things began to go seriously wrong for her. It is believed her parents, who dabbled in witchcraft, cursed her. To this day, no one knows exactly why she became possessed. It began with her sudden inability to participate in religious activities that had been such a major part of her life. Prayer, attending mass, confession, reading the Bible, and taking sacrament. Anna described unseen hands holding her back from participating in these activities. Anna was utterly terrified as the activities that were so meaningful and comforting were forcibly torn away from her by something as she gradually lost more and more control over her actions. From there, things increasingly worsened. Anna began to hear inner voices suggesting things to her she found utterly abhorrent and often blasphemous. The voices and attacks on her mind grew relentless and tried to get her to do things like attack her spiritual advisor or shatter her holy water font. Anna thought she was going insane. When things reached a breaking point in her later teens and an exorcism was approved by the Catholic Church, a priest in the town of Erling, Iowa was asked to allow the exorcism to take place in his parish. Due to the stigma associated with demon possession, the church wanted to help the girl keep her identity secret. The priest agreed to have the exorcism take place and a group of nuns in the area kindly volunteered their convent as the site of the exorcism. When Anna arrived in Erling, she later said she had an almost irrepressible urge to choke the very life out of those who were there to help her. 
even though she desperately wanted to be free of the demons within her, and she appreciated their kindness and sacrifice. The very night Anna arrived at the convent, the nuns realized firsthand they were dealing with something beyond this world. One of the nuns prepared Anna's dinner with holy water. Anna violently reacted to the food and refused to eat it. She instead sat down in a chair and began to make a sound like the purring of a large menacing cat. Another meal was prepared for her without holy water. Before she would eat, this was the last full meal Anna ate until the exorcism process was complete. The exorcism began the next morning after the team managed to pull Anna down from the wall. Once she was again secured to the bed for everyone's safety, they heard a large pack of wild animals growling threateningly. The sound was jarringly unnatural as if it were coming from a far off place. It seemed to be the war cry of the demons that had taken possession of Anna, though Anna's mouth and lips remained tightly clamped. All through the exorcism, various animal sounds could be heard. The sounds ranged from a large group of dogs barking and howling to hyenas, cats, and cattle. It seemed as if whatever was possessing Anna was determined to unnerve those present, but they also managed to alert those in the town of an exorcism going on at the convent. Animalistic inflections were not the only noises resonating from the room. Numerous voices came from Anna's tightly sealed lips. Some voices were human, deep, like a man's voice, or high-pitched, like a woman's voice. Others were bestial, filled with unbelievable rage, while others echoed utter hopelessness and unbearable grief. Not one of the voices bore any resemblance to Anna's natural, youthful voice. The voices spoke in understood languages Anna had never even heard growing up in rural Iowa. For example, when blessed in Latin, she would begin to foam at the mouth and become enraged. The possessed Anna would also correct and mock the priests when they would mispronounce some of the Latin words in the rites and prayers. Often the priests would address the demons in German and Latin and the demonic voices would reply accordingly, understanding perfectly what was being said. Those participating in the 23-day exorcism could not explain how she could vomit buckets full of bile 10 to 20 times a day when she barely consumed any beverages at all. It wasn't always just fluids either. In one instance, she vomited up something similar to macaroni and another time it was sliced tobacco leaves, yet she hadn't consumed any solid food in days. Sometimes she would spit this mysterious fluid at those trying to help her, and other times she would cough it up. Most of the time, though, it came out as projectile vomit. The priest leading the exorcism constantly wiped down his vestment, for it seemed to be aimed in his direction most of the time. All through the exorcism, the priest involved struggled with unexplained problems from Mysterious sounds keeping them awake at night to car troubles even mechanics could not find. There were also problems in their respective parishes, including a dramatic increase in misunderstandings with parishioners and unrest in their congregations. The exorcism team noted pitiful physical appearance of Anna as the exorcism progressed. Her face became so distorted she was unrecognizable. Her body remained twisted and disfigured, even when she wasn't in the thrall of convulsions, with those present claiming it wasn't shaped like a normal body. She grew more and more emaciated and had to be fed liquids with a feeding tube. 
Ironically, during the exorcism, her normal, tiny, frail body would suddenly bloat to such an enormous size it seemed just touching her would cause her to burst. Yet later on, it would go back to normal. The bloating caused her weight to suddenly increase, causing the iron legs of the bed frame to bow outwards, and her abdomen and extremities were hard as a rock. One can only imagine the havoc this must have worked on her body. Anna lost so much weight her head appeared too large for her slender body. Her bulging eyes were reddened with a seemingly glowing expression, while her lips were unnaturally swollen, split open, and protruded from her mouth in a most pitiful manner. It seemed unlikely Anna would physically survive the exorcism process. When Anna was resting from the exorcisms, she would have terrifying visions of battles between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. She also had a vision of a cluster of white roses on the ceiling, which was also visible to some of the nuns in her room at the time. A different type of vision of pure kindness and hope spoke to her and encouraged her she would come through this exorcism. This was promising to Anna and the exorcism team who had been working so hard to see her freed. As already mentioned, the exorcism went on for a total of 23 days, though it was 10 days before any discernible progress was made. The exorcists encountered multiple demons, some far more aggressive and stronger than others. The demons hated all things related to Christianity and had a special antipathy towards the priest and the mother superior of the convent. Day after day, the demons tormented Anna and the exorcism team fought through the vomit, repulsive odors, blasphemy, vitriol, and horrific sounds that filled the room for over three weeks. Finally, on the 23rd day, something wonderful happened. With a sudden jerk, Anna was on her feet. She had pulled away from those holding her down on the mattress and was standing with just her heels touching the bed. As quickly as she stood, she collapsed back down onto the mattress. A piercing, echoing sound could be heard repeating the names the demons had given to the priest, adding the words to hell. Anna's eyes and mouth opened and her voice spoke Forth from behind a smile. From what a terrible burden I have been freed at last. My Jesus mercy praise be to Jesus Christ. Anna was delivered and never troubled by demons again. Bill Ramsey, a real werewolf? Question mark. Bill Ramsey was a com- compactly built, slightly balding, middle-aged Englishman with an unassuming personality. He stood at about 5'7 and weighed around 150 pounds. He made a living as a carpenter and had a wife and three kids he loved. At first glance, there was nothing particularly striking about him. Nevertheless, his calm exterior hid a secret for many years. Demon possession. Bill's problems first appeared when he was a little tyke of 9 years old in 1952. He had just returned from the movies and said that his mind was filled with images of Royal Air Force fighters and heroes. He was playing in the garden behind his home when a strange feeling both physical and mental swept over him. His skin felt icy cold and a vile, vomit-inducing stench filled his nostrils and sinuses and he stood there. All other thoughts were pushed out of his mind except two, running away and wolves. Bill suddenly fell to the ground in fear and confusion. He cried out for his mother who heard from him within the house. Before his mother and father reached him, he lost control of his mind, emotions, and body. 
Something else filled him that carried it with an uncontrollable, senseless rage. As that rage filled his mind, adrenaline seemed to fill his tiny body and he stood to his feet. He turned and grabbed onto the some, something he saw, a wooden fence post. To his parents, utter shock, he pulled it completely out of the ground with the fence still attached. His feat of strength was unbelievable to his parents and neither one of them could recreate this act with the same ease in which Bill had accomplished it in. Next, he began to swing that same fence post with a vengeance. His parents caught up to him. He suddenly dropped the fence post, tore the wire meshing from it, and began to chew it. This scared both of Bill's parents so severely they instantly retreated into the house. As he gnawed on the fencing, Bill later said, the same bitterly cold sensation swept across his skin again as a growl came from deep within him. After a while, he calmed down and seemed to be back to normal. He knocked politely at the back door of his house, asking his puzzled parents to let him in. The family did not speak of this incident again for many, many years. Much later in life, Bill remarried. He began to have trouble with his reoccurring nightmares. In his nightmares, he would be just a couple steps behind his wife who would turn look bill in the face and she would take off running from him as terror gripped her facial features bill would immediately awaken at that moment each time drenched in a cold sweat and his mind clouded with an impending sense of dread these same dreams went on for two years one night after the nightmares had stopped bill had a very very different type of dream in his dream, he awoke in the middle of the night to too heavy, too heavy panting of a wild animal within his bedroom. Only a few seconds later, as Bill threw the heaviness of sleep from his mind, he realized there he was the animal. To Bill's great relief, he was about 15 years. Wait, to Bill's great relief, it would be about 15 years before any strange episodes happened to him. The next incident that occurred began in an English pub where Bill was drinking with his friends. Suddenly, that familiar icy cold sensation wiped over him, just like, the, just like it had when he was a boy. Knowing something was wrong, he quickly excused himself and headed straight for the bathroom. There, as he leaned over the sink and looked into the smudged mirror, he didn't recognize what he saw. He expected to see his reflection, but instead he saw a wolf staring back into his soul. He shook his head as if to shake the image out of his mind and headed back to his friends. The cold feeling had dissipated and he decided all was well, but it wasn't. Bill and a friend sat in the back seat of the car ride home. Unexpectedly, Bill lost control of himself, slowly growling and turning to his friends to viciously bite their legs. The very calm driver pulled over to the side of the road, got out and started to try to get Bill out of the car. Bill wasn't having it and seemed to be caught in some sort of rage. After several minutes of struggling, Bill calmed down and seemed perfectly normal again. Nothing more happened for about a year and a half until one day Bill started to have chest pains. Fearing he might be having a heart attack, he went to the local emergency room and was in the middle of having his blood pressure checked when that same odd feeling swept over him. Instantly, he changed. The nurses and staff described his physical changes that swept over him. His shoulders hunched forward, 
his hands and fingers began to curl into the shapes of claws, and he barred his teeth like another animal. Bill was no longer himself. Something inhumane had taken his place, and it was angry. He lunged for one of the nearby nurses and caught her near the elbow with his teeth, sinking them in as deep as he could. Next, he showed everyone out. He showed every he shoved everyone out of his way and went racing through the hospital, growling and animal-like with blood dripping from his mouth. Several people tried to stop him only to be thrown aside by what seemed to be a superhuman strength. It would take a team of people to pin Bill down long enough for the police to get handcuffs on him and tranquilize him. By the next morning, Bill was his normal self. On the adv advice of a doctor, he voluntarily checked himself into a mental hospital for observation. He stayed for a short time but didn't expect any more symptoms and checked himself out. In less than two months, Bill was back at the same hospital with more chest pains after a visit with his mother. Everything appeared fine until the nurse informed Bill she was going to find a doctor to assist him and Bill instantly became violent, throwing people aside. Four police officers showed up and to their shock, Bill dropped on all fours like a canine and began growling, snarling, and snapping at them. Bill's, Bill severely injured one of the officers, causing him to remain hospitalized for four days. By the time the other officers placed Bill in the back of their squad car, he was back to normal again. After being released from the police station, Bill continued on without any problems for quite some time. The next time the police encountered Bill, he was involuntary, involuntarily, wait, sorry, voluntarily headed to the local police station to ask them how to lock him up before he hurt someone, as he had done to the nurse and the officer in the past. Bill was very much afraid he would end up going beyond just hurting someone and actually succeed in killing him or her. An officer much larger in size than Bill approached Bill's car just as he was losing control of himself. The officer described Bill as having a wide, staring eyes and a crazy expression on his face. Bill told the officer, The devil is in me, and when the devil is in me, I am strong. I am going to kill you. I am going to kill you, and you are going to die. This burly, tall, muscular cop ended up on the ground with smaller-sized Bill sitting on his chest and choking the life out of him. When the officer tried to retain him, restrain him, he threw himself off like there was nothing more than matchsticks in their own words. He would take, it would take six police officers to apprehend Bill at this time. His appearance during these, these periods was described to police as that of a mad and rabid dog. Once they had him inside the cell, they were horrified beyond belief as they saw Bill forced his head and right arm up to his shoulder out of a narrow slot in the door, snarling and growling the entire time. It was physically impossible for a normal human being to do that, but the police involved testified to this incident in the police reports regarding Bill Ramsey. A doctor was called and to sedate Bill and allow officers to get his arm and head back out of the slot without harming Bill. No charges were made and Bill was released into a mental hospital where they ran tests for 28 days. Unable to find any problems with him, Bill was once again released. Bill began to fear he would eventually end up in prison or a mental hospital for the rest of his life in spite of all the doctors and psychiatrists 
psychiatrists had tried to help him. Bill's story made the news and eventually reached Bill and Lorraine Warren, well-known ghost hunters and demonologists. Lorraine felt certain that after reading about his situation, it was time it was a case of a demonic possession and that she and her husband could help Bill find freedom from this awful curse. She was determined to help Bill even though she had never met him. The Warrens managed to find Bill and use their contracts to arrange an exorcism for Bill in the United States. Bill and his wife flew to the U.S. and joined the Warrens in Connecticut. The night before the exorcism took place, Bill found himself trying to strangle his wife while she slept. Fortunately for all involved, he did not succeed. The exorcism began with Bill strapped securely into a chair surrounded by six bodyguards armed with a stun gun in case anything went wrong and Bill got loose. The exorcist, Bishop McKenna, placed his hand on Bill's head. Bill said he felt as if he had, had been hit in the head with a hammer and remembered nothing after that point. Witnesses described Bill going into a trance-like state. For the, for the first 30 minutes of the exorcism, it seemed nothing was happening. Suddenly, however, Bill changed into a werewolf in front of everyone's eyes. The muscles in the back of Bill's neck began to enlarge, his ears twisted into a pointed shape, and a bone-chilling howl escaped his lips. Rage and fury seemed to pour forth out of him as he raised his hands up, leveled to his face, and his fingers twisted into claws. His lips pulled back, baring his white teeth, and he began to growl and snarl as he had done in the hospital and the police station. Bishop McKenna cast out the demon in Jesus' name. Bill relaxed. His face returned to normal. As he came out of the exorcism, he said he felt like a brand new person. All nightmares and manifestations cease, and he has been able to live a quiet, peaceful life. Bewitched Sophia. A priest in 1920s Italy was shocked when a young but very weary woman told him a story that seemed unbelievable. Sophia was an attractive married mother of two children suffering at the hands of demonic entities for seven long years. Before seeking the assistance of the priest, she had exhausted all of their avenues of help. Doctors declared a case of hysteria, but had no solution for her. The church was her last hope, though she had not ruled out suicide out of desperation. Sophia was horrified when she first realized something was taking over her body against her will. She said she would dance until she literally dropped from absolute tiredness, unable to stop until every last vestige of energy she had was completely spent. Other times, she would suddenly begin to act like an animal, leaping from chair to chair on all fours, barking, mewing, screaming, and roaring, wildly moving throughout the house like a trapped animal until her body finally gave way to exhaustion. Once these very active incidents ended, she would be swollen and bruised. Her husband stated he would come home from work and hear the bestial sounds coming from inside the house knowing something was wrong. Upon entering, he would find the house turned upside down and Sophia out of her mind, leaping around the house like a wild animal. When she was in such a state, the children would either go outside to play or go to bed, happening so frequently it didn't even scare them anymore. Sophia did other things she could not explain or had any interest in doing. People saw her sing operas she had never heard and had no way of knowing. 
Additionally, she would mysteriously give what seemed to be lectures in a foreign language to a group that even she couldn't see. Some of the manifestations hinted at latent violence. She would have an almost overwhelming urge to bite and tear at anything placed in her hands. At times, she would rush into a room pleading with her husband to hand her something. I must tear something up. I've got to tear something up. Spoil it. Destroy it. Nothing in the house was safe from the urges. By the time the exorcism took place, the family had very little left that Sophia hadn't destroyed. If ever restrained, she would bite and scratch. Apparently, when under control of the demon, Sophia would exhibit extreme strength. Once her husband insulted one of the demons and Sophia grabbed hold of his throat with such ferocity and strength, he barely escaped. Other times, he would come in and find her hidden beneath one of the tables. Her entire body would be tensed up like a beast ready to spring. Her shoulders would be hunched and her appearance was like that caught in a trap. If he called her name, a voice would reply, I am Isabel, and it is I who gives the orders. After the problem started, she would go to mass and seek blessings from the priest. It would alleviate her symptoms for a short time, but no lasting help had been found. Much to her horror, one of the most dramatic manifestations she experienced occurred when she went to visit a parish priest in another area. She had been lent a horse and carriage and everything seemed to be going well until she got close to the chapel. The horse refused to move one step further. Without even realizing what she was doing, Sophia hopped down from the carriage and ran two feet above the ground, the remaining distance to the chapel, across a field and up a hill. Witnesses described it as flying. Her feet did not touch the ground from the time she alighted from the carriage until she reached the chapel. Animals in the area reacted violently to her approach that day with dogs barking frantically and chickens cackling manically as they ran for cover. As she arrived at the church, her feet returned to the ground and everyone in the church square ran in fear. Sophia entered the church, was blessed by the priests and was much improved, but only for a while. After several more incidents, it was decided something decidedly paranormal was going on, and a group of priests, after careful study of her case and observation of her symptoms, concluded an exorcism was necessary. Sophia was brought in for the exorcism and seated in a simple wooden chair. As the exorcism started, she stretched her body like a fierce feline awaking from a nap. As the Latin ritual began, Sophia suddenly leaned forward in the chair and leapt through the air with amazing agility, landing a considerable distance away. As she looked up, those present for the exorcism were taken aback. Her face was barely recognizable, with witnesses describing it as taking on a hideous aspect. She was holding herself differently, more like a beast than a woman. Her arms hung loosely at her sides as she stooped slightly forward with her knees slightly bent. A harsh, unfamiliar voice came from her lips, pouring out abuse and blasphemy towards the church, the Lord, and all present. As the exorcism progressed, she suddenly broke free from that, those restraining her and attacked the priest. She grasped his robe in desperation while a horrific, tormented scream came forth from her. The priest sprinkled her with holy water and Sophia began to writhe on the floor in pain and anguish. 
Onlookers said she behaved as if burning embers rather than holy water had been cast upon her. Still fighting for her deliverance, the priest placed the corner of his stole on her shoulder. In the blink of an eye, she was on her feet with amazing dexterity, rushing to escape and complaining about how terribly heavy the stole felt. She began to vomit, but oddly enough, it had no resemblance to food. As the demons began to weaken, screams of rage were replaced with wails of terror. Trembling and weakness took the place of the aggressive, bestial stances she had taken before. At the end of the first session, Sophia was utterly exhausted and remembered nothing of what had happened. In total, it took 13 sessions for Sophia to be freed. At the final exorcism, her behavior was quite different. She sat quietly in the chair, her head sunk on her chest, her body limp in imminent defeat. As the exorcist began to speak, she slowly stood up, walked over to a mattress on the floor, and slowly stretched out upon it. Two onlookers, she resembled a corpse. The priest continued the rite. Sophia did not move a muscle, nor did a single sound come from her. This was completely at odds with her behavior at all the previous exorcisms. Still looking corpse-like, she began to vomit. Her entire body was racked with terrible spasms. Everyone present felt tremendous compassion for this poor woman struggling to keep her long dark hair out of the abnormal vomit and barely strong enough to stay on her feet. Suddenly Sophia stood up and pushed her hair back from her face, revealing gaunt cheeks, bloodshot eyes resting in cavernous hollows and what seemed like a total limpness of all facial muscles. Her lower lip hung loose and her slender arms hung weakly at her sides. Whatever was manifesting itself through her carried the look of defeat and made Sophia unrecognizable to her loved ones. Then quietly a voice spoke. I, I'm going. Sophia's chin dropped to her chest as the priest continued to order the demons out. Then another voice spoke. It was Sophia's voice, full of jokes joy and hope. I am cured, she said quietly, looking all around. Departed was the strange look in her eyes and was replaced by her human face. Sophia had been set free. Based on the demon's rantings during the exorcism and some contents of what she vomited, it is believed Sophia was an unfortunate victim of witchcraft. Theobald and Joseph, the possessed brothers, but I'm going to call him Theo. So it's Theo and Joseph. Theo Berner was the eldest of five children in the Berner family in the year of 1864. The Berner family was a hard-working Catholic family of modest means with nothing out of the ordinary until the two boys, Theo and Joseph, suddenly fell ill. The boys aged nine and seven developed bizarre symptoms that puzzled the local doctors. Their symptoms were unusual, to say the least. The boys' abdomens were suddenly swelled to a grotesque size, and they would complain it felt like a ball was rolling around in their stomachs, or that some kind of animal was running loosely in their body. This undoubtedly painful affliction baffled the doctors, who could neither find cause or a successful treatment. The boy's language was suddenly filled with blasphemy and they spoke in unfamiliar languages most of their family did not even understand. 
they became hostile towards priests and other religious leaders and refused to eat any food that had been sprinkled with holy water. Contact with holy water made them squirm like a crushed worm. Theo, in particular, refused to go near a church. Even if he was blindfolded, he would begin to struggle and bay like a donkey if brought near a church or a chapel. They would go into huge rages where they would attack furniture as if they wanted to tear it to pieces and then suddenly go limp as if they had passed out. Anger, irregular behavior, and strange manifestations became the norm for them. At night, both boys would rapidly turn over in their sleep, back and forth from their stomach to their back over and over again. As they would do this, they would hold their bodies rigid with their arms at their sides. This might not seem that unusual, except the boys' parents claimed the turning occurred with such speed it seemed as if they were being spun by an unseen force. Eventually, this disturbing turning was replaced by an even more physically explicit action. The boys would intertwine their legs and arms together, nodding themselves to each other. Onlookers described as if the boys' arms and legs were made of rubber. Men undoubtedly, including their own father, attempted to disentangle them and pull them apart, but no amount of physical strength could unlock the two. Twice, Theo knew someone had died when it was not possible for him to know. In one instance, he, it was an elderly woman, and in another, it was the father of a girl present. Theo informed the girl her father was dead, and she argued that he was in perfect health. Theo countered, stating the father had been taken a, a, a fatal fall. A few hours later, she learned her father had fa uh, passed and fallen to his death in a construction accident. It was worthy to note these statements from Theo were accomplished by statistic mockery and were spoken in a venomous fashion. Records from the time indicate the boys uh, could ascend trees in the speed and agility of a squirrel using only their hands and feet. Once up the tree, they were able to perch on branches simply not strong enough to hold their weight as if they were weightless. After, three, after these symptoms started, these boys were also able to bend themselves in half, backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. They had never been flexible enough to do these things before. It was simply unnatural for the two. As in this case, many stories of possession, the boys could speak and understand English, French, German, Latin, and Spanish, as well as different dialects of these languages. While it is possible they may have heard some of these languages, they were considered poor students and were not known for their studies, and making it doubtful they had learned these languages by any natural means. In fact, Theo's command of French while under possession was considered perfect. Both boys also levitated sometimes, taking the furniture up in the air with them. Objects in the rooms would randomly begin to fly around and windows would fly open on their own. Theo was the only brother to see a creature. However, it was a large being covered in feathers with a bill like a duck and human hands that, in, that ended in terrible claws. When Theo saw it, he would frantically fight it, screaming and crying that it was trying to strangle him. This would happen about 20 or 30 times in a single day. 
When it happened, a nauseating odor would fill the room and saturate his clothes, causing his family no choice but to burn them. When they would remove Theo's clothing, they would also find strange aquatic grass in them. They could provide no explanation for where it came from or how it ended up in his clothing. It took five long years of torment before the Catholic Church approved an exorcism for these poor boys. Theo was the first and his exorcism would take the longest. A struggling, enraged, cursing Theo was carried into the chapel, stopped, strapped to a heavy chair and carried by three large men. He began to foam at the mouth profusely, twisting and turning his body as he looked for an exit. Theo kept insisting he didn't want to be exercised, as blasphemy and hatred poured forth in a variety of languages. He bellowed the worst insults of the priest and fought the restraints with all of his might as the priest began to pray over him. He screamed and howled as the rite of exorcism was administered, shivering, trembling, and howling like a wolf, even snapping at the priest's hand like a wild coyote. He struggled to the point that the three men had great difficulty holding him down on the chair. He was so powerful. After three hours, the priest was drenched with sweat and exhausted. He decided to continue the exorcisms the following day. On the second day of the exorcisms, Theo was placed in a straitjacket and again tied to the chair. However, as the chair was set down, it levitated into the air. After considerable struggle, which included a large strong man being explicitly thrown with great force across, across the room. They managed to get Theo in the chair back down on the ground. Theo again began to foam at the mouth so profusely that onlookers described it as jets of foam pouring forth on the corners of his mouth. After about two hours, Theo began to thrash about and, cra and a crash was heard. Suddenly, he lost consciousness and the demons were gone. Theo awoke about an hour later with no recollection of what had happened during the exorcisms or any memory of the past five years. He was freed from demonic possession, but it seemed the torments he went through those five years as he awaited for an exorcism took a toll on his body and he died only four years later at the young age of 18. His brother Joseph was next in line for the exorcism. While the demon inside him boasted that it was much stronger than the ones inside Theo, his exorcism went much easier. It only took one man to restrain 12-year-old Joseph during the exorcism. He screamed and howled and pouring forth ungodly language and insults at the crew. He made animalistic sounds, yapping like a dog one moment and then squealing like a pig later. However, unlike his brother, he was also calm part of the time. Oddly, in Joseph's case, the demons kept requesting to be cast into animals, such as a herd of swine or sheep. The priests leading the exorcism refused to allow this, ordering them back to hell. As the demons were finally cast out, Joseph pulled out his cheeks, his body exhibiting a terrible spasm as he felt unconscious. Oddly enough, the rosary placed around his neck broke as the demon left. Moments later, in his eyes open, he was stretched as if he had just awakened from a long, long nap. 
he had no memory of the exorcism and only isolated memories of the past five years. Joseph lived another 13 years, which would make him 20, but the physical torments he experienced took a terrible toll on his physical systems. Both boys were completely delivered from the demonic entities that possessed them, never to suffer those same torments and manifestations again. No theory was ever presented to explain how the boys come to be possessed. Well, that concludes our hauntings for this week. The exorcisms of the demonic possessions. Yeah. Um, so we want to give a lot of or all of the credit to these amazing stories to Zachary Knowles. Um, he's wrote a lot of the books that we've done these haunted episodes of, over. So if you want to order one of these books, just let us know. I got these on Amazon, honestly, and there's a bunch of them. But don't order the ones that we haven't done yet because we're getting to all of them. But He um, is related to Beyonce Knowles. No, he is. She's a pop star and he's a demo- like a haunted novelist. Yes. I love that. But yeah, so be on the lookout next week. We or not next week, but the week after, we'll probably do either like haunted forest or I want to do the graveyards. Graveyards, or we have. I mean, we have a lot. So. Yeah. Oh, we could take a poll. We'll take a poll. And okay. See what they want to. We'll do that, and then Patreons, you're getting some content this week. Yeah, next no, week next we're week. recording a Patreon exclusive episode and it's actually freaking I'll we'll post more details about it but it's going to be exciting but it's only to people who are Patreons. So now is the time to get your get your deal, honey. So go to our page, <laughs> click that link and throw your dollar bills at us, baby. Yeah. Good night, goodbye and grab your titties. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.